Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib, a weekly podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex philosophical, spiritual, and political ideas and their intersection in an engaging and accessible way. Well, friends, everyone who listens to this show, and if you're new, hello, <laughs> everybody who listens to this show knows that I'm interested in the intersection of spirituality, politics, and philosophy, like I said at the top of the show, but not in some sort of parapolitics or conspiracy way. Um, I think that those ways of looking at things generally play out shallow, even if there's some truth to it sometimes. What's more interesting to me is the way that those intersections, those currents, play out in our inner lives, in our spiritual understandings, in our ethics and morals and activism, in our desires and our drives. And what that means, of course, <laughs> is that more and more I find myself contending with conversations about tech, technology, and the scientific, materialistic worldview that accompanies all that. It's why this episode's guest, Diana Walsh-Pasolka, who is a religion and UFO scholar, is a perfect person to talk to on the show. But before I jump into the part where it's she and I talking, which is the show, show, I do want to pull apart something that comes up on the episode, and that's the topic of AI. And at the end of that, I want to talk about UFOs a little bit, because I think it all sort of, it all ties together, not in the... <laughs> <laughs> Not in the way that you might think. You know, AI has become a really uh, over-applied buzz term. It's used for all sorts of things. Like someone will set up a shopping app and be like, the AI is giving you great suggestions, you know. But we, we all know that that's a far cry from the idea of AI that's, you know, like an intelligent robot. Um, depictions of it in sci-fi movies like Her or Ex Machina or whatever. And still, though, all of these tech gurus and tech workers and futurists keep up with this drumbeat of AI, 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 you know, which <laughs> you could say it a few times fast and it does really sound like a mantra. AI, AI, AI. Anyway, that's, that's the idea that it's inevitable. It's coming. The, those kinds of robots, whether they're the you know, weird indestructible Fidos running down the street and then picking up sticks in the woods on videos or um, or if it's going to be, you know, like a human-shaped thing with a weird blank gaze talking to us. It, it's inevitable. It's coming, they say. And, and that's great news as long as we don't let it destroy us. Right? <laughs> There's always that, you know, admonition from Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking or whatever. I want to bring in here a political provocation about AI. And I want to say AI is actually, it's less of a thing and more of a kind of political experience and that it's a political experience that ties into belief and also capitalism slash Marxism. Let me sort of explain. In her recent book um, that Diana co-edited with Simone Natale, it's called Believing in Bits. Uh, it's about supernatural expressions in technology. In fact, the, the subtitle is uh, Digital Media and the Supernatural. Um, so in this book with her co-editor, she um, gives an expression of different kinds of belief people have in relation to devices and tech. So 
The first one is just the belief that sustains the way we use devices in tech. So let me read it to you, okay? This is from Believing in Bits. The first category of belief in digital technologies is of a pragmatic nature. Everyday life in modern societies is based on the implicit acceptance that technological artifacts and systems, such as cars, TV sets, or the internet, function and are generally reliable. Crucially, this implicit trust is not often accompanied by the full understanding of how these technical systems function. One might know that a car will rapidly bring one rapidly to one's office without knowing how this happens at a technical level. Such lack of knowledge in technological objects that are omnipresent in our daily life is particularly relevant to digital systems whose actual functioning might be opaque even to the computer scientists and programmers who built them. So I'm going to go a little bit more on that. I actually read this quote again in the show, so just you know, look out for it. You don't have to rewind. But basically, um, what she's stating here with Simone is just that you... I mean, you're listening to this now. You don't know <laughs> how it works. You don't know how your headphones work, presumably. Some people do. Um, you don't know how the phone works, you know, all that kind of stuff. You don't know how your car works, blah, 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 right? So she takes this further, though, all right? So like I said, with this uh, idea that it's opaque to even the computer scientists and programmers, all right? Um so I'm going to continue this quote. This is a problem that is structural to computing technologies and software. While early computers were programmed by intervening directly on the hardware to adapt the machine to different tasks, the division between hardware and software meant that symbolic systems were developed to program computing machines. These systems, called programming languages, feature commands such as begin, if then, print, as well as arbitrary sequences that are nonetheless intelligible to programmers, allowing them to write code executing complex functions. Such commands, however, correspond to actual operations of the machine only after having been translated multiple times in lower-level programming languages, and finally into machine code, which is the set of instructions in binary numbers executed by the computer. Machine code is such a low level of abstraction that is virtually incomprehensible to the programmer without the translation operated by the specific software called compilers, which convert programming language into lower level languages and machine code. So the extension of that first kind of unknowingness that requires this form of belief, the extension of that means that the world gets even sort of more pixelated. The people programming the devices are kind of out of the loop. So <laughs> what's interesting to me about this, and again, I talk about this on the episode a little bit, but I want to give it some more airtime at the top, is that we find a way in <laughs> to all this weird you know, quote-unquote, lower-level languages and machine code when we consider a sort of spiritual socialism as an antidote. What do I mean by that? What do I mean spiritual socialism as an antidote? Okay, let me explain it. I talked about this um, a little bit on the episode I did with musician and activist Billy Bragg. That conversation was on uh, Against Everyone with Connor Abib 79, 
And the reason I talked about it with him, although not in relationship to tech, was because he has a song called Uphill, uh, or Upfield. It's a great song. But one of the lines that's repeated is, I've got a socialism of the heart. And um, I wanted to know (laughs) what this socialism of the heart was. I, I want to think about it. What is socialism of the heart? And I think I understand it for myself. I don't know if this is what Billy meant, although on the show he liked what I said. Um, (laughs) It's an inner gesture. It's a recognition of the connectivity and brotherhood, sisterhood, kinship, and labor. So look around the room that you're in or the car or, I mean, keep your eyes on the road, but you know what I mean. (laughs) Look around at the things around you, the walls, the floor, the computer, the lamp, uh, the couch, the pillows, all that kind of stuff. All of that is formed by labor, someone else's effort, someone else's work. You probably don't know where a lot of the materials came from. You probably don't know how a lot of it works. You probably don't know who it was that made it for you, um, what conditions they labored under, what their lives were like, all that kind of stuff in relation to their labor. So when we stop and we think about that, when we do that work, that's the socialism of the heart, that inner connectivity through an understanding of labor, socialism as an inner gesture. When we don't have that connection, um, outwardly, I, I think the outward part is not as even as important as doing the inward part. Like, in other words, seeking out all the information, I think the inward move needs to be foundational. But when we don't have that connection, we feel something that Karl Marx referred to as alienation. So let me simplify what he means. And Marx says, please, if I don't get this right, back off. (laughs) It's generally going to be right. (laughs) So um, I can just get like, you know, a a red-fingered, well, actually, I can see it. Although I love a lot of you as well. So anyway, solidarity in my simple explanation of alienation. Alienation is when, because of capitalism, basically, we can't define our relationships with other people. We can't understand and create value. We can't feel connected to what we do with our day because of the way we have a relationship to labor, to work, to the wage and labor relationship in our lives through our jobs. Alienation, in other words, is the opposite of the socialism of the heart. Okay. So now let's take all this back to that extension of the thesis that Diana and Simone presented. You can see that we are deepening alienation again and again and again through tech. In fact, at this point, people basically need to speak in tongues to get the language of programming down because you're not speaking in the direct, that lower level machine language. You're actually speaking in tongues. There's almost this principle of possession when we do a certain kind of programming. It's the ultimate form of alienation. What we're moving towards, what is, <laughs> make a joke to quote Yeats, sort of, what is slouching towards Bethlehem to be born, one might say, is the countenance of a program that is so distant from us by means of alienation that it appears to us to be alive. But 
Are we seeing a being or an intelligence? I think instead we're actually just seeing in a robot like that, in artificial intelligence, we're just seeing a reflecting surface that is so distant from us because of labor exploitation that it appears to have its own life. You know, Alan Turing went on to describe some of this a little bit, but I'm going to talk about it a little bit more. In other words, there's no artificial intelligence. There's no such thing. All there is is amplified, empowered alienation in its absolute extremity. And that process that just distances us and distances us and alienates us from the process, the connectivity, the, um, the ability to create value, language itself, that is taking the human out of that process. In other words, AI is a dehumanizing, a really a dehumanizing or removing the human. AI is a dehumanizing through labor. Now, let me move on to this UFO bit. At the same time, the people that Diana has met and interacts with so often, they're tech folks. Um, Many are living very insular lives. We talk about this on the show a little bit. They'll live up on the hill in this mansion and then the people, you know, that she sees on the way there are intense. And surprise, so many of these people are really interested in UFOs. Um, it's not a surprise, obviously. That's why I said surprise the way I did. But uh, let me talk about that a little bit. You know, there's this push in media and other narratives to make materialistic, that is hyper-scientific, narratives of spiritual experiences. Um, when when we encounter something weird now, a lot of times it gets attributed to some sort of alien from space intelligence that's driven in part by media, in part by military, in part by tech. And I'm not saying there are no UFO experiences or alien beings, but as Diana and Jacques Vallée and Joshua Kutchen and countless other researchers have pointed out, there's also a dimensional and spiritual aspect to these encounters that we call alien encounters. Yet the kind of big narrative that's in our face all the time is like, the UFO is a flying saucer from another planet. There are ancient aliens, there's hypertech. You know, that's the face of these experiences, and it pulls them into a much more palatable and aspiritual, scientistic worldview. The pyramids were just inspired by aliens or created by aliens. Magic is just science we don't understand yet. Space is populated by alien beings. But of course... <laughs> it, what it's almost like who cares in a way even if aliens did come here we'd still have spiritual questions we'd still have spiritual longings their presence wouldn't explain the spiritual any more than some clunky book by daniel dennett or richard dawkins can explain the spiritual by trying to break it down into matter and motion the whole idea of you know, UFOs in some ways, it can become a shallow placeholder for spirituality, one that banishes the spiritual and replaces it with machinery. So isn't it curious then? Isn't it curious to me, <laughs> at least, that there's this excitement about UFOs in tech and in military and so on and so forth? And isn't this curious that this is what tech is sort of leading us towards? 
alienation, alienation, right? I don't mean that in some sort of alienation, alienation, like the word is <laughs> something beyond just a psychoanalytic slippage. But it is important to think about that, what those words mean. The separation of the human from their own human experience. The banishing of the spiritual in favor of a mindless wandering in subservience to tech assemblage. Of course, tech people are drawn to those things. And it's because they're in processes of alien nations. Anyway, I talk about all this and more with Diana on the show. <laughs> Diana is the author of Heaven Can Wait, which is about purgatory. She's the author of American Cosmic, about alien encounters and religious experiences. She's the co-editor, as I said, of Believing in Bits. She's a professor of religion and philosophy at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. She's had unprecedented access to the Vatican and the UFO field. She's warm, she's thoughtful, and she's mediating a lot of the intensities of the world that we need mediated right now. Ethics, moral, spirituality, science, technology, religion, and more. I'm so excited to share this conversation with you. I'm still sort of reeling from it, actually. As a little bonus, a synchronicity, sort of, um, this episode is coming out just before St. Patrick's Day of 2021, and it's a St. Patrick's Day that is canceled in Ireland. <laughs> and in Diana's book, Having Can Wait, which is about purgatory, she reveals the belief that there was a site, of, an actual site, a place of purgatory, which was a cave in Ireland. It was a physical place that was infused with spiritual potency by St. Patrick. And that site was destroyed on St. Patrick's Day in 1497 by the Catholic Church. <laughs> so two attempts to cancel St. Patrick. Anyway, I thought you might appreciate that. Before we start the actual episode, I want to say one more thing, which is to ask you to support this show on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. You can pause and just support it now if you like that um, mad ranting intro. Uh, <laughs> it was actually okay. It wasn't mad ranting, but you know what I mean? If you liked it, if that had value to you, if this show has value to you, would you think to yourself like, Hey, I like what Connor does each week. It makes me think it inspires conversations in my life. It sends me to these books that I like reading. Um, whatever. I would buy Connor a cup of coffee every month. I would buy Connor a pint or a can of every month you know, whatever. Or I would buy Connor a meal or a new car every month. That's also okay. Because when you go to Patreon, you pay on whatever level fits your financial situation, however much you want to contribute each month. And this show is only funded by that. Um, I think Patreon has actually done a lot to create a sort of associative economic model. It's not perfect, but it's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's not linked to social media in the way that, you know, uh, certain other <laughs> platforms are. And it allows me and you to have a much more direct relationship. You like the show, you support it. I put the show out there for everybody, but I notice when you support it, it's awesome. And I get to give stuff back, um, Q&As and pop-up events and curated lists and all that kind of stuff. So 
please do support the show, patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. And if you go there also, there are show notes for every episode and you get links to all the episodes. I mean, they're all up there, but you know, there, you get all the show notes and all the extra info I put up, including uh, links to all the books we talk about on each episode and, you know, quotes and all that kind of stuff. So please do support the show. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. All right. It's me and Diana Walsh Pasolka. Here we go. Hi, everybody. It's Against Everyone with Connor Habib. Hello, Diana Pasolka. Hi. <laughs> Listen, I think we should start, I, you know, I hear you um, very often defining belief in your work and also on podcasts and interviews and stuff. But I kind of wanted to start, I think, on the other side of that, um, the refusal of belief, because I think it also plays into a lot of what you do and talk about and study. So, for instance, let me just give it a story like my my friend was driving in a car with somebody and they were going down a road at night in new england and they drove through a woman so this is like this spectral you know figure (laughs) not a real woman they didn't tell me they murdered somebody this is a cool intro there (laughs) (laughs) well and they and so then like you know, they told me about it. They both saw it. They were like, did you see that? So they had the confirmation of each other, you know, mm-hmm. and then they just kind of went on with their lives. And I always just thought, shouldn't that <laughs> matter everything? Do you know, shouldn't that rearrange? Yeah. And and it doesn't seem like that happened. So while we, we talk about belief and the things that people falsely believe in all the time, I mean, maybe we can frame disbelief as another form of belief, but I just am sort of wondering about this compartmentalization or this decision to not include certain aspects of our experience in and how that informs what you do, but also just more generally what you think about that. Yes, that's a great question. Really, really great. Um, Okay, so the question is, I mean, you're asking kind of like the matrix question, right? Hmm. So (laughs) your friends were given a a glitch, right? And they both confirmed that they experienced the same thing. Therefore, they weren't. You know, there are these things called shared hallucinations, but that's not what they were thinking. They were thinking, okay, that must have happened. Let's just go get on with our lives kind of thing. And they went on with their lives and didn't... You know, it it could be there's one possibility that it did rearrange their frameworks, Connor, but they didn't tell you about it. Okay. So you weren't, you're not maybe a close enough friend for them to say, wow, this really changed everything and how I thought about everything. But you don't think that. Okay. Because you know them. Okay. And I I tend to believe you because, and I'll, I'll tell you also why I believe you because this happens to me all the time. So, here's an example from my life yesterday. Um, I'm walking down the road with my son who's 14 and he has an injured knee. So he's on crutches. So lots of neighbors come and stop by and ask, you know, is everything okay? And this and that. Well, he and I started talking about solar panels on houses. We hadn't seen any in the neighborhood. And he, he just decided that that was a good topic 
to talk about. And two um, neighbors on bikes stopped by a, a husband and a wife, and um, they started telling us about solar panels. They didn't know we were talking about them. Okay. And so my son and I looked at each other and he said, we were just talking about that. We've never talked about it before. We've never talked about solar energy ever in his young life. So it was strange, but the people didn't, they just were bent on telling us all about their solar panels. They told us the company to go to, you know, they gave, they were very in depth about their description. And I thought these people have no clue how weird this is. And that, you know, <laughs> so that happens and that's just a, you know, it's not as um, obvious as your example or as, um, you know, cool or paranormal as your example, but it's just one of those things. And I, and I thought about it a lot yesterday, actually. So it's, it's interesting that you asked me about it today, or it's not interesting that you asked me about it today. <laughs> um, you know, this is what uh, I, I correspond with Leslie Kane, who has written about the afterlife UFOs and the paranormal generally. And this stuff happens to her all the time. And then it happens to me and I say, isn't that weird? And she said, no, Diana, that's not weird. Um, mm. And I have a friend who's a nun, or actually she's a sister, uh, Sister Rose. And I've known her for 15 years and we work together at the university and I still say to her, isn't that weird, Sister Rose? And she says, no, Diana, that's not weird. That's how real life is. What's weird is that nobody catches it, that nobody's awake to it. That's what's weird. She said the other way, the other position is weird. So I guess that's my answer is that when people start to pay attention to reality, reality starts to speak with them and they get these odd things that happen, glitches, you could call them in the matrix and, and that kind of tell them to wake up or, or to pay attention. And especially if they're with their friends, right? Like pay attention. And you know why I think that we don't is because we don't have what we've lost uh, in the, in, okay. So historically people have been enmeshed in religious traditions, be it Asian religious traditions like Hinduism or Buddhism or um, Western religious traditions. But in every one of those, there have been monastic traditions. Okay. And then within these monastic traditions, I I'll take uh, Buddhism uh, as an example. And one of the main tenets of Buddhism is that if you are going to awaken, if you, if you start to awaken, you better have a Sangha. You better have a group of people that supports you in this mm -hmm. awakening process. Because if you don't, it gets pretty weird and it gets pretty dangerous. And I think that's actually true. I think if you start to do this on your own, um, you know, deconstruct what we perceive to be reality, I think it's pretty scary if you're if you don't have friends to help you out. So I think that's why this is maybe a self. Um, this is maybe a mechanism that's built into us to preserve our ego structure is that when this type of thing like your friends, when this type of thing starts happening, if they paid too much attention to it, they would have to understand it in a deep way. And that would then restructure their whole lives. And perhaps they're just, they just can't do that right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> right. So there's a sort of resistance or a layer between the experience and then being able to let it in because of the shock that it would cause. I mean, I, I like this um, thing that sister Rose says to you, because I try now to stop saying, 
oh, that's weird or that's crazy or whatever, and just say that's intense, you know, like a devalued, I mean, it still has a value to the word, but like something that leaves its connotation behind so that I'm not keeping it in the realm of the weird or the crazy and seeing what opens up to me after letting go of that, you know? Good. So still acknowledging the distinction, but not making it an enemy of the real, if that makes sense, you know? And um, yes, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Because when we do say it's weird, I think that we've been brought up in the normalized reality, the conventional you know, reality. So it is weird from that standpoint, but now living so much in this other, I think that our, again, it just also, you know, perhaps you and I both have two, uh, you know, one foot in two worlds. We have one foot in the world of what we would then call weird, but we know isn't weird. And then one foot in the matrix reality, you know, mm, and, mm. and I just use that word because everybody, you know, it's kind of like code sure. for <laughs> the, the programmed reality. Okay. And Sister Rose has lived her almost her entire life in the spiritual realm, the spiritual reality. And so, and apparently Leslie has too. So they've, they're so in that reality that they don't have two feet in those realities like you and I do, or one foot in, in each reality. You see, so they're firmly planted in the other reality. Therefore, when I say, oh, that's so weird, they correct me. Right. And now it sounds like you're correcting yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, I think I think it's so it's so interesting because literally just minutes before getting on the call with you, I was talking with someone about the spiritual work that I'm doing right now. And I said, you know, it's so interesting since the beginning of 2021, I feel like I've just been like there's one part of me that's all sort of down here that's been running the show career body habits patterns work and i also know that there are these sort of up there versions of myself and i'm doing air quotes for people that can't see me when i do down here and up there because i know spatially it doesn't exactly make sense but you know and um I'm not out of touch with them. Like, I think that those parts of myself are also doing a ton. So it really does feel like since the beginning of this year, I've been living in these two worlds in this really profound way. And I think, you know, before we get into (laughs) the fact that most of your work seems to have (laughs) this two worlds question going on or the multiple (laughs) worlds question going on, I mean, I just want to say, one of the ways that I deal with that is by making sure as best I can that I use language that's authentic to me. So that's part mm-hmm. of the self-correction. But the problem with using language that's authentic to you in reference to what you said, even though I think it's the right move, is that when you start using your individualized subjective language to actually try to honestly report what you've experienced, it starts to pull you out of the realm where language is exact, where language is a dimension where people meet to understand each other. And so you start to drift like you're in the water and the tide is pulling you farther away from where your blanket was on the beach. And suddenly you're like, wait, how the hell did I get all the way over here away from my blanket or (laughs) whatever? And so, you know, on the one hand, I want to authentically report with my language, but the other, like you have to like keep going back to that understandable, um, 
consensus language. I, I don't like consensus, but because I don't know that people consented to it and there's an implication there of it, but mm-hmm. get, getting back into that shared realm of exact language that always diminishes the language of subjective experience. So I'm not exactly sure how to deal with those two tensions. And I know, and we'll talk about academia, I think a lot in this conversation, but I, I know that academia forces you um, to make that move all the time when, especially when you might be having very strange experiences um, or <laughs> intense experiences. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm wondering how you manage that. Or first of all, if you feel resonance with what I've said, but if you manage yes. that, you know. Yeah, I absolutely feel resonance with it. And I think that um, you, okay. So I'll give you an example. After first I did <clears throat> I didn't quite know how to write this book that I wrote called American Cosmic. Um, I actually knew how to write other books and I never had a problem authoring things and getting them published. That was pretty easy for me. Um, But this book was not easy to write. And the reason it wasn't easy is because it, it, there's no genre for it and it, it didn't fit in any type of academic book and it actually didn't fit in any type of, genre there is out there because believe me I looked through all of them I'm like okay this is I don't know how to do this so I'm just gonna be super honest with it and then after it was published I have and I still do the one of the largest audiences for my book happened to be artists of all types Mm. okay so it crossed out of academia into the art world and so I've been giving talks at museums and I've been you know giving talks at galleries, you know, places where artists um, understand. And I think you're an artist, right? So you are a perform, you know, you're a performance artist. So you have, you already understand that language of, Mm. uh, it's another language. Uh, Yesterday, believe it or not, I was at a museum listening to an orchestra. Mm. And there was one, there was one piece in particular, it was classical music, which Again, I refer to my 14-year-old son. <laughs> he was with me listening. We were listening to his sister playing. And um, but there was another band that was playing. And it was it was beautiful. I mean, it was classical, but the music was moving. And so afterwards, I was driving home with my 14-year-old boy, and I said, Oh, you know, um, did you hear that one piece? You know, and he kind of laughed, he said, it all sounded like classical music to me. <laughs> he goes, what, do you, what exactly do you mean it was moving? He goes, because there were no words. How could it be moving? So I tried to explain that there's nonverbal language, you know, mm. animals use nonverbal language. I mean, they have a, they have a language, but it's, it doesn't use words. Like we, we have tonal, you know, we have tones that express things. So we have a lot more in terms of communication than, academia allows. Mm -hmm. And so what I did was I put that into my book and that type of my experiences, basically I had to write them into my book. And so that appealed to artists. So I think that if you're going, I honestly think we need a new type of language. And I've been talking to people about that. I've been talking to people in the space program, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. Um, I just spoke to a woman whose work is fascinating. Um, you know, she, what she does is she works in the space program, but she actually takes the language of insects and she, she uses a computer program to image them 
into sound mm-hmm. and and images so that and they look like mandalas. And she says that this is another form of language and it can be decoded. I mean, so, you know, in terms of language, I think we're, you know, we're still evolving uh, with respect to that. And I think we have to under, you know, I mean, like um, art is a form of language. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's so interesting. First of all, I'm, I was laughing a little bit when you're talking about your son again, because I can just imagine him like getting frustrated and be like, mom, stop making me the portal of revelation. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I, um, but I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, as far as the new language thing goes, it's so interesting because one of the things I've been thinking about since the beginning of the year, let's see if I can do this quickly instead of talking about it at length. Um, <clears throat> and it's so fascinating because you mentioned it in Heaven Can Wait, um, your book about purgatory. There's this passage in the Bible where um, I, th- I forget, is it in John where, um, you know, the people bring the adulteress to Christ um, and they say, should we stone her? And everybody knows this passage from the line that's like, you know, let he who is without sins cast the first stone. But the little part that gets overlooked very often is that Christ is writing in the dirt, right? Or he's, he's using yes. a stick or and he doesn't write anywhere else in the Bible. So it's this fascinating moment where then suddenly he goes out and, you know, they, they, and obviously nobody's thrown a stone at her. And so something has woken up in them. And so you parallel that with this beautiful moment of St. Patrick tracing something into the ground um, as the sort of revelation of purgatory comes to people in, in, in Ireland. And we'll talk a lot more about purgatory, I hope, for people that are listening. It, you know, um, Diana does this great job of showing how it's a real place in Ireland, not far from, I mean, it's far from where I live, Ireland terms, but not far from where I live in any other terms, um, in, in, in Donegal. And then also um, how it's a sort of, you know, spiritual place. But basically, Patrick is, St. Patrick is tracing in the ground and then purgatory somehow becomes available to people. And so something I've been thinking about so much lately is this exact thing, which is the creation of new symbolic forms that reveal to us uh, a new religious or new ontological or even epistemological experience. So they're not... um, they're not, uh, how do we say, invaded or compromised by these kinds of currents or intersections that invade and compromise language in the way that we use it. In fact, they're forms. Um, they're, they're, they're total forms. And so they have the capability of bringing revelation. And what would that look like to us if we were striving to actually create new forms rather than just sort of piece together things with the tools we have that have all been sort of compromised and invaded by, you know, the forces of time, history, adversarial forces, political forces, economic forces, all that kind of stuff. And so I really like what you're saying. I mean, I love the insect thing, although it's not quite it, like what I'm saying, mm-hmm. you know, it's not mm-hmm. quite the tracing in the ground of a new form that reveals, you know what I mean? But it's still right. fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, it sounds a bit like social ontologies, like this idea that these things that aren't necessarily physical spaces, but are, we open them up, they're moral spaces mm-hmm. and they're, um, they're other dimensional types of spaces and we open them up through that 
type of symbolic, a symbolic system. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, that's, that's really beautifully said that the new form, because yeah, I had this guy, I don't know if you know his work, Jason, Jason Josephson Storm. He's a scholar of religion as well. And he has a new book out coming out called metamodernism and something oh, that's a cool name <laughs> it's great and he's saying there's this new way of knowing we don't have to do modernity or post-modernity but we also don't have to leave them behind but one of the things he says is like well yeah why aren't the artists invited and it's so it's so fascinating because in his first book the myth of or the second book the myth of disenchantment he shows how anthropologists are doing this one kind of thing and doing their research and meeting you know and like and all that. And then he shows how actually a parallel course of work is happening that's actually doing a lot of the same things, but bringing a lot more adherence in, and it's theosophy. And that actually, wow. the theosophists are really <laughs> successful because they're actually going to India and hanging out with people and talking right. to people about the religion. So that's much more like what you're talking about, where it's like, well, no, actually, I am doing academic work, but I'm meeting with artists, I'm meeting with conspiracy theorists, I'm meeting with you know, uh, someone at the MIT computer lab, I'm doing all this kind of stuff. And, um, so you, you know, may have maybe unwittingly become this nexus of metamodern. <laughs> it, <laughs> metamodern. Does, it does sound unwitting. I now need to read everything that he's written <laughs> <laughs> or his podcasts. <laughs> I think I think, listen I, to his podcast. <laughs> I think you would like it. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, do you have that, like, do you have that feeling of this new, form yeah like this new form and way of speaking a new kind of discourse coming as a result of this book i mean you must in some way even if you can't necessarily mm, summarize it yes um i knew i could feel it before it happened um and i do believe that i've been doing it a little by little and finally it came in a book form and i do think that a lot of people in academia do, can't recognize it, and that's okay. You know, um, it's okay because academia has to change anyway because of infrastructure pressures. You know, with technology, COVID. You know, the the new you know people who rule the world. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like who are all tech techies and who ha- happen to know. <laughs> so it's a terrifying kind of time really. And I, I feel the pressure of it, I guess it's like an urgency. So I think that what happened was I finally kind of broke out of my constraints and then Mm. wrote the book as I had to write it. And I knew I had to do it with an academic press because it was going to be so incredibly bizarre and weird. And it was, and so, but it was fact-checked you know, by Oxford and it had to go through that process that academia puts up and, and that's, I needed it to, and I wanted it to, that was part of the strategy, but it came out. I mean, I hate to say this, it sounds somewhat egotistical, but it came out basically taking academia's constraints and busting them down Mm -hmm. and basically prevailing over them because there's nothing you can, you, you can't, identify it as having having a bad argument or anything like that or you know i think that i i got a lot of anger for it too like some of the first people that wrote were academics and they were like 
angry at me. I got this one email that I thought was, was you know, <laughs> I hate to say it, but it still makes me laugh it, because I agreed with the guy. He wrote to me and he said, I just don't understand what kind of book is this? Is it like, what genre is it? It Just let me know. And I was like, I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> so I wrote him back and I said, I thought a lot about this and I just don't know what kind mm. of book it is. So, you know, in that sense, I think that, um, of course, it has to be that way. I mean, if, we're, if there's new territory and there is, and we're, you know, uh, there's a poet. I wish I could remember exactly. I have to paraphrase the poet. And I wish I could remember the poet's name, but it's just such a beautiful passage. It's this idea that we're on this path, but we can't see the path. And he says, turn around and look back. There's the path. You made it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and that's a lot like song lines as well, you know, as Bruce Chatwin describes them with, you know, Aborigines that you sing as you walk and the world shows up before you as you sing the song, you know, and that's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I think, <clears throat> Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting way you describe American Cosmic. So, you know, <laughs> I was writing something for school and I included a reference to Jacques Vallée, right? And um, and for people who don't know, Jacques Vallée is basically, gosh, I don't even know how to encapsulate it, but UFO tech weirdness researcher who's highly respected and very prolific. Okay, so that we'll just, <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. But um but not not ensconced in academia, um, and mm -hmm. I included him and my one of my professors, who's very very intelligent, but he was just very irritated by the inclusion, not because he didn't have credentials, uh, Valet Valet didn't have credentials, but because he was like, mm, there's a kind of equalizing thing that's happening here that I don't like, where we're sort of saying, well, this phenomena looks like this phenomena looks like this phenomena without regard for like very detailed cultural context, which is bothering me. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what you're talking about, which is really interesting because you've worked with Jacques and other people who are doing overlapping work is you're in academia and then this, this current sort of flows through what you're doing and it and then yeah it creates this completely new kind of book which academics can't they can't they can't really get rid of which is the no, best part, can't. right because of your you know because of your credibility and your like um your credentials is what i and methodology to say. i methodology. think it's the methodology i mean it's it's sound i just you know it's the same methodology that other people would apply to you know, Virgin Mary scholarship or something like that. Mm. There would be no talk, talk, you know, about it or anything like that. But I apply it to the UFO world and I include people who are super wealthy and credentialed too and believe in UFOs. And I think that's what, but I don't, I think it's beyond that. I honestly think that um, mm -hmm. there is a way that I did it, which is, I still can't understand it. I've been trying to understand it, uh, but I think it is somewhat, uh, akin to, I mean, if you go back and I always go back to Heidegger and he also, he's one of those people that then tried to make his own language because he didn't have the language, you mm -hmm. know, to, to talk mm -hmm. about what he knew was happening and what was going to happen. But it's and really so, annoying in him. Like I don't, I know I'm like the only person that like goes back to his work, um, <laughs> but you know, he's, he's got some really interesting short essays. They're not that short, but okay, like, uh, what is a work of art? 
I mean, it's a super interesting essay. It talks about Van, the painting that Van Gogh did uh, called The Peasant's Shoes. I don't know if you're aware of that mm-hmm, painting. Mm-hmm. And it's basically just these shoes, right? And they're really kind of beat up shoes and everything. But there's something really transcendent about this painting. And he asks, why? Like, why is it that you can take like a paint and a brush and create something that is it incarnates right? It incarnates mm-hmm. something. And so I think that, you know, that's what art is. I mean, what is art, right? So he's asking a basic question, what is art? And I think that, um, I think that, that it's the highest form of communication of, of something transcendent. Mm-hmm. That's what I think it is. And I uh-huh. think that, um, you know, it could be music. Like when I said, Oh, this, this really moved me. This music was, you know, and the, the musicians were, do, were interpreting it beautifully like they understood it you know and so um yeah i think that art is it's not you know superficial like andy warhol said (laughs) (laughs) well i mean it's it's so i mean it's it's a great place to take the conversation because it's like also right like for heidegger to pick out vanka like painting shoes you know, the question is, how did he make the shoes profound also? Or how did he make irises or whatever profound? You know, like when I would go and see the irises, one of the irises paintings, and I stood before it, and it was so affecting. And I thought, I this doesn't look like irises at all, actually. But it is the pure evocation of them. And that evocation is somehow even more special than standing in front of the irises. I mean, this is a completely bizarre experience. It right? is. It is, yes. So then, you know, then the, the idea is like, <laughs> why did I decide to paint, you know, what I've painted? Why did I decide to paint shoes? Why, you know, do we have, I think it's like Jerry Coe, right? Who's like paints the first images of like severed body parts. Like why the hell that? Why why was that selected? Why are certain right. objects chosen for art? And and you can do this across disciplines, right? Like, so Lorraine Dastin, who's a scholar of history, you know, and, and science and religion, she's great. She has, you know, why why do we choose certain objects for scientific study? Why that? you know, and not mm-hmm. this. And I think that's part of what you're, I think that's part of the power of what you've done, right? I think that's part of the evocative power is like, you know, I heard someone, <laughs> I hope you didn't listen to this one, but I heard someone who's like a, like a magical practitioner person say, you know, this book is really messy and rambling, but then he turned it, you know, and positively he was like, however, American Cosmic is like, it's messy and rambling, but it's like, like what else could you do to describe this phenomena, which like leads you on wild goose chases and all these like strange places constantly all the time. Like it feels like the object of study. And so in the same way, Ooh, that's a great compliment actually. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, he, he, he sort of liked the book and didn't like the book, you know, but yeah. he was definitely interested in the effect it had on him, you know? Yes. Yes. And, and so it's good. Yeah. Like being baffled by your book, I think is the right response to, <laughs> to it, to be honest, like different yeah. forms of bafflement. Uh-huh. So I think that's, I think maybe that's it. It's like, you know, why did you choose to study this? But you didn't just choose to study the topic. You chose to study the form that it takes in us when you research it. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yes. I mean, I was, I was, um, 
I was really, let's put it, let's, how do you describe it? I think that I was actively, well, obviously I've, and I've, I've talked about this when I recognized that people who I would describe as people I didn't know existed, right? These kinds of characters that I describe in the book, there, there are many of them. And I recognized a group that I didn't know that I felt like, wow, you know, you hear only about these kinds of people in fiction. Okay. Mm -hmm. But they're real. And I called them the invisibles and they exist and they study the phenomena. They don't, their work isn't on the internet. You know, it's, it's like, it doesn't exist quote unquote. Oh, here's my quote unquote. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't exist. Um, And then you have this other group that are affiliated with the big academic institutions and they also study it, you know, under certain types of clearances, right. Confidential or, you know, there's different kinds of clearances and they, they do their part. And I guess this blew my mind and this blew my mind. And then I was, I was inundated, inundated. I was, um, it met, immersed in communities then of academics and people who are associated in various ways with government agencies that, that were all part of it. And they all, it was very different. It was a different environment for an academic, I think Mm. Um, kind of a scary environment to tell you the truth. And I didn't (laughs) quite understand, you know, wow, how do I write about this when I can't, cite these sources right and i talk about that in the first part of the book so i think that it's a a destabilizing book for sure and it disturbs a lot of people it disturbed my editor a lot and um it disturbed me while i was writing it it disturbs me now um so i think that the fact is is that uh we live in this type of reality and that we have to you know you can say that the that it without we don't right but that doesn't make it go away <laughs> does it just how does it disturb you now i mean that's an interesting question because i keep thinking you know there's a moment in that in, in american cosmic where you are blindfolded and taken to the site and it really mirrors initiation rights you know in mm-hmm. its way and i thought hmm like um now that you have been sort of initiated into this world does it feel <clears throat> as um as this this shaman from uh, Burkina Faso once said to me, oh, it's like you've graduated into a new danger. Like you can <laughs> oh, get your great. driver's license, but then you can get in a car accident. You still want the license, but wow. big trouble that's now, right? That's a great right? term, graduated it into a new danger. Right? I love that. Yes. Yes, so, that's exactly how it's like. Mm. Exactly. Perfect term. I'm does it feel threatening that. now? Like, I mean, does that feel, do you feel um, sort of... So as it came out, of course, I was, uh, I met other invisibles and other, you know, uh, levels. Yeah. So I guess what it is, is that you learn the terms of the territory Mm -hmm. and that's what I needed to do was I was, I was kind of an idiot really. When I started, I was like, (laughs) you know, like, okay. um, Academics tend to be too um, insular, mm-hmm. you know? And all of a sudden, boom, when they're hit with the actual thing, they're like, what? 
you know, is this real? Wait a minute. Let me get my glasses, you know? And um, <laughs> I think that's kind of how it was with me. It was like, what? Like, is this real? And then afterwards I was, yeah, you're right. I initiated into it. <clears throat> and then recognizing that there are these new um, rules. I need to mm-hmm. learn the new rules. And there's, there are people to tell you what they are, but they don't tell you overtly. Mm-hmm. You make your mistake and that's your lesson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I'd like that you say that the academics are that academics the academics as if you're not one and I'm not one sort of in training but like <laughs> that the academics are like too insular because I mean maybe that's part of it maybe it's like the insularity and the sort of reproduction of well my advisor wrote about this so I'm going to write about a different version of this refining what my yes. advisor did on that it's like a way to protect yourself from the initiation it is. right yes it really is yeah Hmm. I think grad students, actually, I remember being a grad student and and having conversations like this, you know, that this is our, uh, and actually talking to psychology students who were then going on to be psychiatrists and talking about how, <laughs> you know, being super uber intellectual is a defense mechanism, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. So I guess my defense mechanisms broke and, and then boom, American Cosmic came out but I did you know if you think about it though I did and most people don't know but I I write a bunch so that's just Mm -hmm. one of the things I've written so up to American Cosmic I'd been playing with this idea of breaking out and one of the ways I did it was I would write these short essays and publish them one of them actually did do this cross-cultural I asked the question that you that you're um I think maybe one of your professors posed to you when you cited valet. And it was this question I asked in one of my, um, my essays. It's um, this question, how can we responsibly as academics do cross-cultural analyses of these really weird discs in the sky phenomena, mm-hmm. right? How can we do that responsibly? How can I take discs in the sky that come through your walls and like scare you in your house, chase you around or whatnot? Uh, how can we like take those experiences today and compare them with an 18th century, you know, sister, Ursuline sister in France who had the same, it looks like the same exact thing, mm-hmm. comes through a wall, chases her around, scares, scares her to death. The whole convent has to pray this thing away, right? And so it takes a convent, by the way, to, to get rid of this thing. They interpret it as a soul from purgatory, whereas today we interpret it as a UFO or something mm-hmm. like that. So how do we do that and kind of analysis, but we we keep within the constraints of, you know, what we know to be responsible scholarship. So I do ask that in uh, an essay before American Cosmic comes out. And um, I think the essay is called, oh, I can't remember the essay now. But it's, um... <laughs> well, please send it to me. And if okay, it's online, I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> it's great. I mean, well, so first of all, now you're just making me think. I mean, I, I won't say who said this to me at school, but they basically, one, one of the faculty members was like, look, you want to make work that actually goes out into the world and like makes a difference. And in some ways, it's actually our job to stop you from doing that. Like, you're supposed to be initiated into a society and demonstrate a certain set of skills and pathway that allows you to be in this society of your discipline, right? So now I'm thinking that like maybe academia is this sort of like 
mm, mock initiation or like sort of um, stand in for initiation so that people aren't actually go, go through initiatory processes. <laughs> That's so fascinating. I've thought that myself. We're so conspiratorial. <laughs> <laughs> Right, exactly. You know? Yeah. And the <laughs> administration, think, you know? You know yeah, like, it's really bad. Yeah. I thought, you know, they, they take the best, they take this, the smart kids and they put them through this terrible process that like takes any kind of creativity out of them. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, I've thought that about academia. I, I'm sorry, academia. I know you are my bread and butter, you know, but I mean, I've thought that I'm like, wow, what a way to kind of corral us all and make, and you're right. Stop totally. us from being like, go through the actual initiations, but. Which yeah, is why as like a sort of compromised solution to the repression, now more and more academics are writing about witchcraft, ghosts, magic, occultism, UFOs, all that kind of stuff. Like maybe it's like the return of the repressed or something like that. And that's why, you know. Definitely. Oh yeah. <laughs> but but I want but I wanted to say to this point, like and I hate it, and it's in academia through and through, and so I would really love to hear you talk about this move because you don't make it, which is something like, well, whether the phenomena is real or not is not my concern. What I'm talking about is this, 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 and this, right? And whenever mm-hmm. I see that, I kind of want to scream because I think if there's an onto- if there's an ontology that really includes <laughs> the like um, the existence of these beings or this phenomena or whatever, it absolutely changes the way that we would view belief or the way that we would view, you know, in, in, in Tanya Lerman's case, kindling beliefs or the way that we would view, um, you know, these kinds of encounters. I absolutely would. So how could that not be of concern? And you don't, as far as I can tell, you don't actually do that. Um, you don't make that move. And so I don't know if that's because you're Catholic or what it is, but I, you know, um, I'd like you to speak about that because it was really refreshing when I read your work. Most anthropologists and most people in religious studies, you know, we ha- we are trained basically to make that move of this is what they believe and I can study it because I don't have to say it's real or it's not real. Okay. Um, and what happened through the experiences that I had through you know, the writings, I mean, I think that we have to just be honest and say, we just don't have the ability to say if it's real or if it's not real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think we just, if we want to experience it, we, I mean, if we want to write about it, I think I was brought, I mean, my religious studies department at Syracuse University was incredibly uh, attuned to this move of mm-hmm. Western people's basically to say our brains are the ones that, you know, is, you know, we measure all things by our brains and our frameworks and our epistemologies. They were so anti that, that I was basically kicked, you know, and it's not because I'm Catholic. I think it's because I've been um, so trained to not do that. You know, I first was, you know, trained by Jesuits, basically. Uh, I was at a school of Jesuit theology that was associated with UC Berkeley. Um, and they weren't making those moves. You know, they were smart. Um, my, a lot of my professors actually were f- friends with Foucault. He had lived there a while. <laughs> mm-hmm. He enjoyed hanging out with the Jesuits actually. And so, you know, I mean, so yeah, I guess I had a, a, a non, I wouldn't call it non-traditional training because I think that's, 
training that's responsible, right? It's responsible and probably accurate training in the sense that we can't be the judge of, you know, but we can still do scholarship about these Mm. things, but we can't be the judge of them and say whether or not they're ontologically real or not. Well, I mean, in some ways, in some ways I feel like, yes. And in some ways I feel like, you know, something I, I keep trying to like explain Sorry, I don't mean this to be the uh, Connor Habib heiress's grievances with academia to Diana Pasalka <laughs> show, but I, but I think it, it is really pertinent to your work because your work has broken out of the constant loop of what academia expects, and so it's really profound. It's profound for the content, of course, but you get asked about the content in many ways all the time. So I actually am just very interested in this form and this accomplishment, you know, this tremendous accomplishment of your work as well of breaking that cycle. Because, you know, when I talk to people in my department, you know, they'll ask me questions and sometimes I'll be like, I actually don't think I see reality the same way as you do. So I'm not exactly sure how to go forward and bring this work forward and they'll be like what do you mean and i'll be like okay well i went to the park the other day and suddenly there was this giant fluctuation in the ground and the earth and the air and i started seeing strange things you know and that were things that would be strange to you you know and i had to sort of go out and it was very vulnerable i felt very like almost embarrassed to talk to them about it but i was like how do i do the kind of academic work that you want me to do and pretend that that's not how I experience things. It becomes such a bizarre question. I mean, I can, I can leave out ideas. I can sort of, you know, but when you get handed an artifact, when you meet people that are revealing a different kind of, a different version of the world to you, it becomes, I think, to, you know, not impossible <laughs> to be an academic, but it becomes very difficult to um, really report what you are gathering as data when your lens is actually different than other people's lenses now, because it's changed. If that, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really good question or issue that you bring up. And a lot of people have asked me, I've had a lot of grad students who've reached out to me and asked for help. Right. Mm -hmm. And I feel kind of in a bad position or a difficult position, unless I know they're, PhD advisor well. Um, And so I say, I think that you might not want to write about UFOs until you have your tenure, you know, and I I hate to give that advice, but I didn't write about it until I I was a full professor. Mm -hmm. So, and there's a reason, and I hate to say that. And I, but that, you know, academia says, these are the rules that we play by. You play by the rules or you're not an academic, you don't, you know, and yeah. So I played by those roles and a lot of people will, like I said, I think I had a very supportive graduate program of professors who helped me, um, you know, but when I, when it came time to write, I did the kinds, I mean, I would describe the first articles I, you know, wrote and to be, strictly academic, you know, in terms of this is my source. This is what I think about it. This is my argument, you know, kind of thing. And then, um, yeah, I mean, it's not an easy path to take the, the academic path. It's, 
it's difficult. So, and there's, there's no reward there really, unless you have intrinsic, unless you're intrinsically interested mm. in the material. And I think that's what has to goad you on is your intrinsic interest. And then when you have these conversations with your professors, um, I guess I, <laughs> I have, I have to say you have to, at the, I mean, heck, you know, if you, you need one good professor there, Connor, who's like, can like help you through this, you know? <laughs> I like them all, by the way. It's not, it's not really a comment on them. It's just, um, uh-huh. you know, when you have basically a different epistemology uh, than your like s- structural, a st- conscious, structural consciousness difference from your professors, it can make things a little hard sometimes, <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> I completely understand that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I got a lot of, um, let's see, in my early academic days, I think what kept me alive, really, mm. I mean, when I say that, that's, that's too harsh, you know, and uh, hyperbolic, but what like helped me continue because it wasn't easy, really, um, was the, because, you know, if you think hard about things and, and deeply, it's, you can become depressed, and so I would think I would read the works of Judith Butler, you know, and I would work, I would read the work. I mean, I read a lot of works. I read the works of Hunter Rent. I read a lot of women philosophers who um, created new realities through their words mm-hmm. and understood that discourse, you know, creates worlds or erases worlds too. And so I guess that's, I needed that to sustain me. And, um, and that kind of helped bolstered this work that I do, I guess, is what I'd say Mm. is that those, you know, thank goodness for, for books and now the internet where we can access other people's, you know, thoughts, right. Uh, Stephen King said, writing is telepathy, right. Mm -hmm. So you can, you know, read another person's thoughts, um, because how could we survive in a world that's so epistemologically oppressive, really to people who don't think the same mm-hmm. or are, you know, they're not the same. And so I think that the, uh, the people who come before are help, you know, they're, they've, they're, they've made the way. Right. And then we read them and then we, we become emboldened again to kind of continue on. Yeah. I think it's a really, I think that's a really loving way to express it because you're also just saying like, you know, if you, if you cultivate your relationship with the dead, it can actually help you, you know? I mean, I think mm-hmm. that's, it's a spiritual proposition in that sense as well. Like how do you relate to the dead and how can that help lead you through the problems that you're encountering navigating this space? And by the way, they're not confined to um, the same kind of materiality as you are. So they've overcome the problem through having experiencing the meaningful event of death so you get to gain something from that as you go forward, you know, <laughs> you can, they, they can appear to you and help you in all sorts of ways that a living person couldn't, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I was thinking as you were talking before, there's a part in heaven can wait that was making me your book about purgatory where um, <clears throat> there's all this back and forth about 
um, is purgatory a real place? Is right. it a spiritual, you know, whatever. And so that's very interesting to me where it's like, um, you know, uh, the medieval bestseller, The Treaties of St. Patrick's Purgatory, written by the Cistercian monk H. of Sultry, <laughs> H. of Sultry, re- recounts <laughs> the tale of a night visionary who literally walks through a cave into purgatory, which is represented as a physical place. He is fully awake, not dreaming or having visions. And the tale inspired many pilgrims to journey to Ireland in search of the real entrance to purgatory. And w- what that made me think of, because I'm not sure, so th- it's medieval, I don't know exactly what the year was, but it made me think, you know, and maybe in relation to the things we're talking about, when is it that stories of physical evidence were required to uh, gain purchase with a spiritual claim? So in other words, when did we start needing to talk about, no, this, this was a real place. This was a real, these are objects. These are, you know, this is matter. This is a place that someone went to. This is a thing they did. Um, to say, oh, this spiritual thing actually happened. Because I don't think that that's true cross-culturally exactly, you know, or throughout time. And I don't know if you had identified maybe a time when you saw that happening or, or um, it, it, yeah. Yeah, so that's really interesting. So again, you're right. It's not, it, this is very culturally specific, actually. And also it's very, um, this idea that there's a separation between spirit and matter or between a spiritual realities and physical realities um, didn't exist at the time that St. Patrick's Purgatory was written. So what I found fascinating with this topic of purgatory was that purgatory, which is this place for people who don't know, um, it's a Catholic doctrine, European Catholic doctrine, and it's a dogma. Okay, so people have to believe in it but most people don't know about it. <laughs> so, but people did for, for like a thousand years or more, people believed in purgatory. And if you go to Europe and you see the Catholic churches there, there's actually a, you know, a chapel devoted to mm. prayer for the souls of purgatory in those chapels. Okay. So the question is, what is purgatory? Purgatory is a place with multi-levels that is, a well, we tend to think of now as a spiritual place where souls go, because we tend to think of souls as, as these spiritual things, that the souls go so before they um, can get into heaven, because they're just not good enough yet to get into heaven. Uh, but they're not bad enough to go to hell. Okay, so it's this Catholic doctrine. Um, well, this Catholic doctrine was kind of excised from practice in the 60s after Vatican II, which was a council that took out a lot of the physical um, like uh, statues of saints and things like that were removed from churches. And, you know, so this idea uh, basically was this less emphasis on punishment. Uh, The Catholic church wanted to kind of put more emphasis on um, good things and, and social, you know, basically uh, Catholic social work and things like that, helping people instead of thinking about your soul and where it's going to go. Okay. So, um, but this was a huge practice among people was to pray for souls in purgatory, remember the dead in purgatory and things like that. And it became a spiritualized dogma at some point. It became a spiritualized dogma in the early modern time period. And there, but it was, it was actually a place and people believed it to be real and physical. 
And so there's even in Rome, there's a purgatory museum that shows physical evidence of souls coming back Mm. and touching Bibles and things like that and burning their hands into Bibles and things like that. That looks pretty sketchy, frankly. I mean, (laughs) I've looked at the things and I'm like, man, you know, maybe. Um, But so, you know, obviously this and a priest created this museum in the 1800s to make sure that people remembered that this was an actual place. So you wanted people to believe through physical evidence. Okay. Because, you know, physical evidence is, is the big thing. And so, but, you know, I mean, strangely during the writing of uh, St. Patrick's purgatory or when it was written, this was a place where people would go and they would go into this cave and it wasn't just in Ireland. There was also a place in Italy. And there, there were purgatorial caves. And, and people believed that they would see, you know, demons, angels, all kinds of supernatural beings there. And by the way, most likely Dante mm-hmm. most likely took from St. Patrick's Purgatory because his purgatory is an island. I mean, it's kind of coincidental. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, the question was like about the the... <clears throat> is there a moment do you think then in history because you you sort of mark it with purgatory but do you think is there a moment in history then when we begin to only believe in the spiritual claim when the physical evidence is presented you see what i mean so like yeah no i see what you're saying yeah because i mean that's kind of going on in american cosmic too there's right. this physical stuff and you know the person who takes me out to see in new mexico to see the actual crashed parts of a crack of an alleged alien craft you know the reason he takes me out there is because i think that you think too much that this is like consciousness and not something physical and i think you really Uh need to see some some actual stuff you know some actual physical things and that's why we went out there and so yeah i mean it's a recurring theme in my work is this whole idea of you know the the trace of the spiritual physical trace of the spiritual And, you know, you see a lot of that in Catholic stuff, like, you know, Catholic, you know, Virgin Mary, the tears of Virgin Mary, of the Virgin Mary statues and, you know, things like that. Um, I, you know, this is, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that now with research into psychedelics and stuff, you see that a lot of people access either certain parts of the brain that reveal actual, um, things that can be corroborated by other people. And maybe that's just parts of our brain that we're opening up like a door and we're going in there and we're saying, wow, there's some interesting things in here. Right. Or it's an actual place, right. That's a, that's kind of like, you know, can be accessed through mental states, you know? So mm-hmm. I, so uh, these are questions that I continue to think about, but I have no answers. I hate to tell you that, <laughs> but when, you know, <laughs> but it's definitely true. This, this myth of disenchantment too, Okay, so I I understand that, but there was an actual disenchantment mm. process that happened mm. to purgatory, and that did happen in the the church, and also happened in you know with the rise of science and kind of this this kind of mm. false tension between religion and science, and um, you know where religion is is for fools and science is not, you know, science is talks about real things and things that we can, you know, have evidence for and we can apply the scientific method to and things like that. So, I mean, you know, when did that happen? That was all early modern stuff when mm-hmm. that happened. Yeah. I think that the myth of disenchantment thing is like the, the, the proposition that 
the the enchantment just sort of got pushed around into different places so that Mm -hmm. like in some of the places that we mark as like the modern period are actually or or, or, super enchanted yeah yeah like even (laughs) you know like adorno being enamored with the cultists and hegel being like a hermeticist Mm -hmm. and that and 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 mark's publishing communist manifesto and his spiritualist you know, like having it published by yeah. spiritualists, you know, it's all yeah. pretty amazing that that's all there. But it's so interesting that you point out that purgatory is actually like, it. what did you call it? Like the gradual dematerialization, right? So like, yes, yes. So it's the opposite direction in some way, yeah, which is so, exactly. so fascinating. I thought so too. Yeah. So I think that um, uh, Robert Orsi is one of the ones, but sev- several other people in my discipline I pointed out that, you know, the idea of this modernity, this kind of like meta-modernity, well, yeah, like meta-modernity is a, is fake, right? Mm. So there are multiple modernities and, you know, mm. and histories. There, it's not necessarily linear. Like you said, you know, the dematerialization of purgatory, that is a, that, that kind of goes contrary to what we're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. And just so people understand, can you describe the difference between purgatory and limbo? Because I think those get sort of confused. I actually thought that they were kind of the same thing. And then I read your book and I was like, no, I was dumb, but do you no, think no, any- nobody knows? I mean, I was a limbo on. Dumbo. Yeah. But could you- <laughs> limbo dumbo. <laughs> sure. So, um, okay. In the cat. So again, this was a, uh, you know, a belief in Catholicism for like a thousand years or more. And it's this, it comes, limbo comes from the, uh, Latin limbus, which is edge. And it was, either described as, because there's no coherent doctrine of limbo. It was either described as the edge of, of purgatory almost to heaven. So kind of like the edge of heaven or the edge of hell. So either or, Um, but for the most part, limbo was a place that this, like if you're, if you had a baby and it died before baptism, the soul of that baby would go to limbo. Okay. Or, you know, if we look back and we see virtuous pagans like Socrates or people like that, their soul would be in limbo because they weren't, they didn't have the benefit of baptism to put them into heaven to put their soul into heaven. So this, this doctrine caused all, or this belief caused all, manner of pain and suffering for parents and all kinds of people, you know, um, who's, you know, loved ones were destined for limbo and they'd never see them in the afterlife and that type of thing. Um, but the, uh, Pope Benedict eradicated limbo in 2007 Mm. and basically said this no longer, this belief is gone. It no longer serves us. And I thought, well, there you go. You know, something, you know, this, this church that is like completely, you know, never supposed to change, you know, it changes all the time. And so, um, yeah, this really confused people because they thought that he got rid of purgatory, but purgatory and limbo are distinctly different places. And and do you think, do you find that like, so I, I wanted to clear that up because I want to sort of pave the way to ask you about this. Do you find that like, are people talking with you about purgatory or limbo more now that we're, all in our own sort of reclusoriums, right? Or that, like, that we're, you know, because when I'm reading your book about purgatory, it's like rights of enclosure, reclusorium, um, you know, people that are, you know, in one place um, alone, and we're all 
and and also feeling a sort of penance for the way that you lived your life before, right? Like, because I think a lot of people are at home now reevaluating the way that we've run the world and shared in running the world for the past however many years and seeing that that was a failure. And now we're just at home sort of reflecting on it on our own. And I didn't know if some of the, the discussion was coming back up for you with our qu- quarantine or, or, or lockdown. Yeah, nobody's directly made that connection. Um, I've made that connection, but I've kept it to myself, um, you know? But yeah, a lot of people, I mean, we that's exactly what we are doing. We're entering, and I actually do in my... Uh, one of my books, actually, it's in that book. I say, you know, uh, that as my husband would watch my kids, I would enter the cave of my computer screen, mm. and I would, you know, basically write this book. And it's true, we do. We kind of enter these new spaces, um, and we do we do them. We do that alone in our room, right? That's kind of weird. And if we do live with people, we usher them out. And we say, oh, I got a Zoom meeting now, right? <laughs> <laughs> so we're, yeah. we're uh, yeah, we're alone here. Um, I think it's a very um, interesting time right now with all of us, and especially because I can see how it's affecting young people, mm-hmm. you know, people in college, people, uh, young people that are in middle school and high school, and it's somewhat rearranging everything, okay? It's forcing us to be in this new infrastructure that I, you know, that Heidegger predicted we would be in. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of, you know, it's like, okay, boom, everyone's in it now. You're either in it or you're completely out of it. And so it's a, you know, it's a stratifying yeah. situation that's disconcerting. Yeah. And, and how, I mean, how interesting too, like I was uh, someone was telling me, actually, a, f- a previous guest on the show, John Tenney, and I talked about this, I think. He's a paranormal researcher. And I guess, um, like, there have been more ghost sightings now because people are at home mm-hmm. now more. So they're noticing the hauntedness of where they live, whereas before they wouldn't have. So along with that, you know, there's so many ghosts related to purgatory. And in fact, I think some of the really, like, really early ghost stories they really just deeply relate to purgatory because the idea was that as you write that um, God would allow the ghost to exist because they either to do penance or to warn somebody. Right. Yes. Yes. Like in um, a Christmas carol, right. With Scrooge and Marley, Uh Marley comes and basically he comes in chains to, to show what not to be Mm. to uh, Scrooge. And in yeah. fact, he's in purgatory. Mm. Is he, he's in purgatory in that? That's so interesting. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. He's got some change. I mean, it's really cool. If you go back and you reread that after having read my book, you should reread that book. <laughs> in fact, I think I quote it at the end. I mean, I think I do because, um, and that book was interesting because that book also, I think he wrote that book in order to sustain his actual other work. Right. Mm. Because, and so he wrote the book, like as, and he said it just came to him. He, in fact, I think he even had a dream. He dreamt it and then wrote it. <laughs> Always the Christmas hit is the thing that will like, <laughs> make the <laughs> right. artist. That was his Mariah Carey's "All I Want for Christmas Is You," and that just. <laughs> um, but that is like, um, you know, also so going into some of your latest work, which is in this really awesome 
book called Believing in Bits, which you co-edited with um, Simone, Simone Natal. Is that how you say his Nat- name? Natale. Yeah, Natale. he's great. Super intelligent guy. Super amazing. Yeah, and wrote wrote this great book called Supernatural Entertainment. I think he has a new one coming out too, right? About he does, AI. and it's on. Yeah, and it's on uh, Turing and the Turing test. Yeah, I was actually I was going to invite him. I, I I was just about to invite him on, and then I was like, no, I have to wait until I can read that book too because it looks really great. Oh, it's be amazing. <laughs> but there's a lot in so this book. So digital media and the supernatural is the subtitle, and it's about how. Well, I talked about in the introduction a little bit, but it's basically about how there's a kind of overlay or sometimes even a motivator of uh, supernaturalism in tech, in mm-hmm. in the d- devices we use, the programming, the software, all that sort of stuff. And that, you know, we tend to sort of frame tech in opposition to supernatural stuff or spiritual stuff, but in fact, it's completely permeated through and through. And so... As a result, also, we're seeing these horror movies that are about, like, ghosts. There's a new movie called Host. Have you seen this? Oh, I've heard of this. Yes. <laughs> Zoom meeting horror movie where it's actually it's best if you watch it on your computer because it actually emulates the Zoom screen on your computer. Wow. That's it's really so disorienting. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, so so you're tracing in this book and the, the collection of essays here, like, how how the supernatural actually, if you really just look, it's at, and belief really, but it's just everywhere in, in tech stuff. So could you sort of take that away a little bit and then we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that as our sort of last item here. Yes. So just as you pointed out that modernity was completely, you know, enchanted um, when you, and in fact, this is so interesting because what I found was that and the reason why I called American Cosmic, I had to, you know, talk about technology a lot because, you know, the people that were at the forefront of doing this research were all in certain respects, technopreneurs or technologists, biotechnologists, mm. um, microbiotechnologists, you know, things like that. And they were all doing the cutting, you know, this is all Silicon Valley doing cutting edge tech. And it was all permeated with paranormal stuff every bit of it and there was you know i mean the beginning of the internet the arpanet was a military uh program that jacques worked within in uh helped create and part of it was to um either create or create the conditions for uh mind to to mind interface through tech and then tech to uh, you know, it was called the augmentation of the human intellect, basically. And so, yeah, so the very genesis of of what we're doing now was was considered to be like that, like somewhat, you know, I, I hate to use that word paranormal because it's actually more normal than para. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, people do use that term. So I would call it that. Yeah. So um, so Simone and I, Simone and I, so he actually his work is on spiritualism, right? The movement. And, you know, tech was all over that movement, right? So people use different means of communicating with the dead through technology and um, things like that, you know. So so we just kind of did a historical and a contemporary look at tech and the ways in which it's framed as either haunted itself 
or, um, you know, inspired by people who were really immersed in spiritual and paranormal communities. Uh huh. Yeah. So, um, I'm smiling while you're talking about because there's this cartoon. Have you seen it where it's like people at a seance or, and they're like seances were the original Zoom meetings? Annie, are you there? Can you hear me? <laughs> yes, I've seen no, that. No, you speak, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I mean, that is the perfect, you know, that move of normalization, you know, of like, look, we've been doing this. You know, we have right, always yeah. been, yeah. we've always been techies, you know, in a, in a mm-hmm. way to paraphrase mm-hmm. Bruno. The tour is like it's pretty interesting. So, um, but you, I mean, it, it. So you locate the these forms of belief um, and how belief intersects with tech in a lot of different ways. But one of the the first ones, which is just so obvious, but it applies to a lot of things that aren't just technology, but is like, um, look, we all use these devices and we believe that they're going to render, that they're going to be reliable, that they're going to work. And yet we have no idea how the hell they work. So it's like, I mean, if anybody wants to just pick up their phone or actually you probably have your phone if you're listening to this or whatever, you have no idea what the fuck is going on right there. And yet (laughs) there's an acceptance (laughs) that it will happen. So the mysterious is always introduced to us by a gap in knowledge. And I find that one that's just the first one. You're like, it's the practical one, but I'm like, yeah, that's crazy. absolutely. It is. It's totally crazy. It's intense. Yes, it's intense. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> now I have to do my own. I'm going to be doing this self correction now too. <laughs> but can you talk about that as a category of belief, like the the just sort of gap in in understanding? I've not actually talked about that. But I think that's a brilliant. Um, you know, uh, observation and that I, it is the, the most obvious in step one, right? Hmm. What, like what, <laughs> you know, the <laughs> cell phone, what? <laughs> and I think that in every once in a while we come to think that, cause you know, think about it. We also come to think what we exist what? Like there's mm. a universe, you know, we, we, every once in a while, if we're thinking people, we do that, right. We're like, wow, this is so weird. How are, how are we all here? And, you know, isn't it just existence is just mind boggling. Well, okay. So the cell phone, I do actually um, discuss the cell phone quite a bit in American cosmic as kind of like the monolith, mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the monolith is kind of there in Kubrick's movie to go on quote unquote progress or what is it that you know because it doesn't look like progress when you watch the movie you're like that doesn't look so good you know so I'd rather be back there right uh-huh. <laughs> we should smash the monolith <laughs> uh-huh. uh-huh uh-huh well that is I mean in some ways I think this first category of belief um so just to just to quote from the book. The first category of belief is based on the implicit acceptance that technological artifacts and systems function and are generally reliable. This implicit trust is not often accompanied by the full understanding of how those technical systems function. So in some ways, I think this is actually weirdly what 
Marxism is addressing when it tries to paint a picture of labor. Like if you look at your the room you're sitting in right now, or the computers that we're looking at each other, we have no idea where those came from, who assembled them, how they knew to assemble them. And they're all products of effort, right? So I yes. think this is actually the spiritual principle of Marxism in a way is like, we will be, we'll be the people that understand the connectivity of all these things and we'll call that labor, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I find, I, I like, I, I almost find that sort of solve there, but then <laughs> you move on to the, um, the second one, which is like uh, that <laughs> things are coded in a way that first of all, the the basic code is not, is confusing to begin with. Yes. Mm-hmm. But then even the people that are coding don't understand the code. So there's actually different there's there's different ways to not know. It's not just the not knowing of the cell phone, but there's really even more and more levels of this cave or whatever it is. Yes. I mean, it's so yeah. Oh gosh, and we're so distracted. I mean, I wish people actually read Marx. Yeah. <laughs> you know, instead of just using Marx as this, you know, synonymous with communism or something like that, which is horrible, but that happens all the time. And, you know, and kind of like as even uh, a way to stop people, let's a policing effort, you know, don't be a Marxist or something like that, or you're just a Marxist, Mm -hmm. you know, as a way to, to shut down conversation about these very questions, you know, um, okay, I have to do it again. My 14 year old son. (laughs) So he's, he's, yeah, thanks to him basically for sponsoring. <laughs> like the Sesame Street episodes were brought to you by the letter A and the number 12. This episode brought to you by Diana's 14-year-old son. Thank you. <laughs> so he's he's bored because he has a leg injury. It stops him from going to school and and you know walking around. And so he's doing a lot of coding and he's creating mm. uh some kind of rudimentary video games, right? So I'm looking at the coding that he's doing. And I'm thinking of like blockchain, right? Or I'm thinking of, you know, the Bitcoin and things like that. And like we hear all about it and we hear about people doing this or doing that. And it's kind of, you know, the new economy and everything, which most likely will happen. But what we don't see is we don't see the energy, you know, because like he, my son created a very small tic-tac-toe game that, you know, takes, I don't know, a minute to do. But the coding it took you know, and the effort it took to do that was, in, was it was four days in the making. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the code was huge. And I said, wow, the code is just amazing for that. And he goes, I'm sure I could do it a lot quicker. There are probably better programs. And then I thought of Bitcoin and, you know, um, blockchain. And I thought, my goodness, the coding that goes into that and the effort and, mm-hmm. you know, the energy and everything like that. And we don't see that, nor do we think about it. You know, we only see the dis- the distraction that it and the people making you know millions of dollars, even some mil- billions of dollars on that, and that creating the society that Marx feared. You know that like this complete society of the social stratification of the classes, where you know there's the eradication of. Hmm. I mean, it's just horrible. Um. So yeah. So that's you know. So I think that your point. That's what it led me to think about was. 
Yeah, that's great. That's great. I mean, so basically, so what you're saying is like that alienation that he's talking about, it's like, it's a deeper form of alienation, even than he had sort of imagined. And it's far worse, like, where the language of our labor is actually in, in, uh, indecipherable to us. Yeah, it is. And indecipherable from the people who are creating it, too. And Uh that's so terrible, because think about like, um, it's almost as if, Oh gosh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot, I think that, <laughs> to, to take in, right? <laughs> well, that, it's interesting because you were talking, oh gosh, I have so much to say about this. I didn't realize I would have a lot to say about this, but you, but you were, you know, when you're talking to Lex Fridman and that interview and he was just sort of asking you questions about AI and everything, like now I look back on that from what you said and I'm thinking, oh, actually, like, AI isn't really AI. It's just like ultra Turing test, like trick where, um, and, and it's actually explainable through Marxism where AI is just a form of ultimate labor alienation. And that's all it is. (laughs) And that, you know, even when I, when I was in an undergrad in college and making a GeoCities site, which was basically just pictures of guys I thought were cute. So (laughs) I made this GeoCities site (laughs) and it was, (laughs) And it was like, now looking back on that in the reference of religion and belief, I was basically speaking in tongues. Like I was typing in tongues. I didn't understand the language that I was typing. I just knew that it worked and I knew that it was evocative of an effect. And so that just keep, that was for fun back then, you know, right. but that just keep happening and happening and happening until now the labor organization is so alienated that it appears that we've created a different life form. But in fact, is just evidence of terrible labor practices. <laughs> yes, that are completely invisible. Completely invisible. Unless to you us. point them out, unless you point them out. But what I find is that I'm not seeing them pointed out. Mm-mm. And that's what's scary. And also, the, um, okay, so I was also, of course, looking at, um, you know, the ethics of AI recently and the firings at Google of some of the ethics professors and you know who were um you know basically saying if you take all the data that's out there it's going to be a very skewed you know picture and we're going to sediment that into these programs and that's going to create a frankenstein type thing you know effect because i mean i've had uh i've been Hmm. you know i would call it my twitter identity killed by twitter bots Right. Mm. I'm not joking, you know, uh, in one episode of my life, like about a year ago. And so I remember it happening. I wasn't even on my I, I don't have social media on my phone. So I usually just go home you know, because I'm careful because of the communities that I was uh, studying and with. And, you know, I had friends in these communities. So I had to be careful what's on my phone. So this all happened when I wasn't even on Twitter. I was being attacked by Twitter bots. and then replicated and you know they all were uh like imposter bots like yeah yeah so uh and so i i you know they passed the turing test for most of the people that were on twitter Mm. and going you know i even trended i trended that day and i wasn't even on twitter (laughs) wow and it was a bad trend by the way you know very terrible (laughs) things happened and so i you know i was like okay this is a lot scarier than um people assume you know so there so Mm. yeah so this kind of yeah i agree with you about this about the kind of sounding alarm about what's happening Mm. with our coding and 
you know, the invisibility of it. And that's probably the next book or something like that, you know, but you know, the book, the book now can't even, it takes too long to write. You just have to get this stuff out there. Um, <laughs> yeah. I recommend actually this article I just read by Somi Arian. Um, mm. She just, she's a, um, a tech, she calls herself a tech philosopher and uh, she's fascinating. She's in London and she wrote an article that well, basically about this, about what, you know, she start, starts with Kurzweil, mm. uh, you know, Ray Kurzweil. And then she kind of goes on and, and discusses implications of this AI and, and things like that. Mm. Kind of like sounding the alarm type of thing. Yeah, I'll, re- I'll I'll definitely read it. I mean, I think like the alarm is Ray Kurzweil. Like we should all be very actually thankful for him because he presents as if it's desirable exactly the direction that we'd be going in, not realizing that it's not desirable at all to most people, (laughs) you know, except people that are sort of in that, you know, unfolding sort of thing. But yeah, it's funny. I I made a joke on Twitter the other day. um, And what rough beast it's our come round at last slouches towards cryptocurrency to be born, you know, like (laughs) this quoting the the Yates film, like (laughs) it does seem like this thing with the blockchain. It's like, it's striving to be, it's striving to exist and it's finding all its forms and sort of assembling its Mm -hmm. kind of uh, cells or something like that. And I mean, there's, there's definitely, um, I mean, in my understanding of the world, which is deeply informed by Rudolf Steiner, you know, there's, there's, there's names for that. There's an entity that's trying to sort of assemble itself um, called the Araman, but we won't really get into that. I won't drag you down. I know about the Araman. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, I do. I mean, of course. <laughs> right, of course you do. Yeah, you've had very intense experiences in your life. But I mean, you know, if people want to just say, understand it metaphorically, which I don't actually, I think to really understand it, you have to take it more literally, but metaphorically, it's just like this being that it's, it's, its presence is composed of a reductive materialistic understanding of the world. And so all our materialistic actions and the things that support that, and some of them are very surprising. You wouldn't think like our um, sort of reinforcers of, or, or sort of loops that are, creating or evoking this being or its presence so even if it's just a psychic structure or an archetype or a collective unconscious or whatever or, or just some sort of prediction for social structures it's still that we're kind of evoking it through our actions in the same ways that we might evoke capitalism or evoke, or evoke the internet or whatever it's just it's something that's pulling us along and so and it's very dangerous you know um, mm-hmm. and i think it's well named um, by somebody from the early 20th, late 19th, early 20th century, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but now I need to know how you know about it and where, it, and if it came up from those guys, you know, that you were hanging out with in the desert. That's so fascinating that you ask. Um, let's see. Hmm. I know about it from various sources that both, you know, I mean, I was an inquisitive kid so I read a lot of Rudolf Steiner when I was a kid Mm. um and then you know Rudolf Steiner always comes up again in conversations with you know in communities and things like that so um recently um yeah so it was it was brought up by uh I wouldn't say one of the guys but it was a person within well, because it wasn't a guy. <laughs> That's why I wouldn't say that. I should just be super honest. Um, but it's a person who is um, within tech and 
uh, has been for a long time and looks upon the uh, Araman as a actual thing, mm. like as a, not, a, not as a metaphor. Mm. And so started speaking to me about it again, like this was, a, I don't know, a few months ago. And then I, I kind of revisited it and looked at it and thought, hmm, that's kind of interesting. Interesting concept. So then you bring it up. <laughs> interesting to think about it in terms of blockchain. Uh, uh, to- totally, totally. I would love if you um, if you feel comfortable reaching out to that person and asking them if they feel comfortable being put in touch with me because it's that's come up on the show. I mean, I did a whole round of um, episodes basically about tech with people that were in tech in various ways or exploring technology in various ways. And one of the things that it's quite clear, and I think you actually make this very clear in believing in bits, um, that, well, it, it's, you only have the intro and one essay with David Metcalf in here, which is a great little punchy essay, I think too, actually. But, um, but the collection is that there is, uh, there is a spiritual morality in tech, whether we like it or not. So we better actually get a hold of that and figure out how to make moral technology. And we're so far from that right now. And it seems like a real imperative. You know, I mean, you just talked about ethics advisors being fired or whatever. But beyond ethics, we actually need a morality, you know, around tech, which is something even harder to do. And technology that is moral in and of itself. And that's, I mean, I think beyond what people are thinking of, but something that I think your work actually makes possible, you know, maybe you didn't realize you were pushing towards that, um, or maybe you're not, but I think you are, whether you realize it or not. (laughs) Yeah, maybe that's the burden I feel. (laughs) I think so. Yeah, I mean, I do. I, I feel really burdened now by what's happening and what I've learned about and the people that, I mean, just being in those environments, those techie environments, you know, in Silicon Valley, going to California, I'm from California, but I don't live there now. But when I go back, I'm in those environments and they, they're very, they're very much like academia, only more so, you know, they're, they're, well, I mean, I don't, it's, I think we all know that they're super elite environments and it's there. There's some. They're very um, maybe not super self conscious of that, and that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you say the burden, I mean I know I think we all, unfortunately, we all have a responsibility for what we see. Right? Yes. So now that you've seen what you see, yes. it's a huge obligation. Yeah. It's an adventure. Let's. I'm trying to reframe it that way. Just like the weird, weird, intense thing. It's like this is my adventure. You know, you're super refreshing, and I'm so happy that we are talking. <laughs> Good. So, so can you talk about that um, burden, burden adventure that you're talking about? Yes. <laughs> yes. I okay. So my work after American Cosmic, and then the being a part of the groups and everything like that. Um, the people that I gravitate toward. I mean, I gravitate toward now are like Somi Aryan. Okay. Um, she is from Iran. She used philosophy at Nietzsche to reinvent herself because she came from abject poverty and oppression. And she's super successful 
She has a successful marketing business in London and she has what she calls a dream. And that's to help women and girls learn tech so that tech can be moral, just like you say. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so she's very explicit about that. And I, you know, she reached out to me and we developed a friendship. And so I support her and I feel like my work could help and you know that type of thing now alongside knowing her i'm also still involved with the research in california i go to california and a lot of the people that live there live in say you know say hollywood hills or something like that and then i'm very when i go back i'm in various hotels either in the hollywood hills or down in the valley and so at when i'm down in the valley i am usually you know escorted up into some really elite place in the hills. So I'm so this is my hometown is California, right? So I'm back and forth going there and I'm seeing the tent cities in the valley mm. of homeless people, you know, that go on look they look like for miles. And then going back up to where they're creating, mm. you know, Bitcoin and blockchain and things like that and these kinds of technologies. And the differences in um the the uh, class difference and also the belief systems you know the belief systems are different um i've heard some you know movie producers talking about well you know i mean just the most amazing uh justification for this type of disparity you know is like they you know they chose an incarnation to be you know, to go into those cities or something like that, those tent cities, which, you know, is appalling to me, but that's just, you know, that's how it goes in terms of, you know, these kinds of uh, ways of, of trying to live there, I guess. Um, so, yeah. So I guess I see that all of this as a call to the, if, if I do, if I do do more writing or you know i feel like a call to action more than a call to writing Mm. honestly Mm. i think that's all really beautifully put i mean i think (laughs) first of all there's so much there like with some arian is that her name so yeah she's really really cool i know that you're quite taken with nietzsche i don't know that if you know that rudolf steiner visited nietzsche on his deathbed i did not know that how did i not know that he was really interested in nietzsche and he said you know nietzsche would have been the only person that could understand what i was doing um and he he went and visited nietzsche but nietzsche was already out like and he said i could see him struggling like the spiritual forces struggling above him even in his final moments you know wow and um he wrote a book about nietzsche but um but so it's interesting that that thread also is 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 coming in and then i think you know <laughs> thank god for horror movies about the tech stuff because mm-hmm. it like your book you know um your co-edited book believing in bits it's like an insertion of the theological back into the technological. I mean, in some ways, when we watch a horror movie, it allows us to sometimes dismiss the phenomena, but it can remind us that actually there is a spiritual effect in the room, just like, you know, you'd, you'd consulted on some horror films. And I think mm-hmm. that that's what horror does. It's like, it's one of the only places where people really get to see spiritual art anymore. Yes. <laughs> You know, right? And so, and then, and then, you know, it's like when you talk about the the 
the tech people like up in the hills and then the tent cities. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about someone being, you know, choosing an incarnation on Skid Row or whatever. Maybe they did or maybe they didn't. But like the fact of the matter is, if that's true, then the people up on the hill, like they're definitely not living up to what they chose to incarnate into, right? <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah, in my in my perception, I'm like you feed these people, or you you know you give them medical supplies, or you know that's that's just. But I don't know. I mean, everybody has a uh, their beliefs, like their you know their spiritual framework and system. Um, mm-hmm. Mine was informed by liberation theology, and I went mm-hmm. to a, a, an all girl Catholic school when they still had them. You know, and they were run by sisters who actually helped people in El Salvador and then come would come back and tell us about it. Mm. So, I mean, my my whole thing was like, these are people that are actually doing good things, you know, and I don't really see that in a lot of what (laughs) I see around me. (laughs) So (laughs) I, I think I think, you know, just to sort of just to bring this to a close here. First of all, I love that this episode's coming out right before St. Patrick's Day and that in 1497, as you point out, the Catholic Church destroyed the cave of purgatory on St. Patrick's Day and uh, yes. and, th- and trying to eliminate people's ability to actually um, encounter with great effort their sins and, and, and cleanse it from themselves. Um, <laughs> it's really fascinating. But then, you know, so, so I think... We, we sort of are talking about some of that moving from one state to the next. And I was calling it the adventure. I think, I think this sort of portal, not just the portal of your 14 year old son, (laughs) this sort of portal that we've gone through. I think it's like, I think of it as the adventure, not the burden only I mean, of course, in part because of some privilege that I have, but I think also because I feel we're being called to do those new forms like we talked about earlier in the episode and that you described really beautifully in your work in various ways. And that right now we're kind of in this new place where it feels scary because it's... um, it feels scary because it's unexplored, you know, we're like, Mm -hmm. okay, we're here now. What is here? What's around us? What do we do? But that to me is very exciting. And I think someone that's doing the work you do, which is very rare um, really has something to contribute to the rest of us exploring this, you know, mapless territory. So I'm really grateful for your presence. Well, thank you so much, Connor. Um, and I, I'm super grateful for you too. And the questions that you ask, and it makes, it gives me hope, you know, you're a grad, you're a younger, you're a younger person. Um, and I appreciate what you're doing. And I also want to point out that when the church destroyed the cave, the people's cave in Ireland, remember they, they waited for the church to leave and then they built it back. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh no it, they actually hid the real cave <laughs> and they destroyed a fake cave <laughs> so the people prevailed remember I love that. yeah i love that <laughs> yeah um all right well thank you so much for this conversation it gives me hope too and i hope it gives um hope and excitement and enthusiasm to everybody that's listening so thank you so much diana thank you it was great to be here yeah thanks everybody uh, bye now